Good morning. Uh, my name is Derek, and I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Bayou City Fellowship. It's an honor to have you here today. It's an honor to open up the Word of God uh, with you today. Let me just make one quick um, kind of segue. Uh, next week is a really important week. Uh, if you've been meaning to invite somebody, uh, a friend, a neighbor, someone has shown interest in the past, uh, next week we're starting a new series uh, in the book of James. Uh, that's kind of the rhythm of our church. We go kind of through a, a book or intense kind of heavy, a little bit heavier theology, and then we kind of do the topical. So we just did relationships. Uh, and then next week, we're going to jump back into James, or we're actually going to go through James all the way to Christmas, take a little few-week break, and then finish up in January. And so if you have somebody you want to invite, uh, next week would be a great way to say, hey, just say, next week, my pastor's going to be here, CJ, Curtis Jones is in the house, going to be bringing the word, a new series. Um, why don't you join me a Sunday, this Sunday? Uh, and I think you'd be surprised how many people would say yes. Uh, well, today, uh, Curtis uh, gave me a freebie. He said, uh, just don't mess it up. You can preach on whatever you want. And so uh, I got to pick from anything. And so we're going to be preaching today or learning today from one of my favorite parables. Uh, so if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Because the, the idea that I want us to rally around and to, to kind of pick apart today is this idea of returning. This idea of returning. Now, I know it's kind of homecoming season. Is anybody going to their high school reunion? Anybody? Uh, yeah, you can raise your hand. Don't be ashamed. It's okay. Like, you're going to go, all right? And so when we have these high school reunions, like 5, 10, 15, 20, 60-something, um, I was just playing with you, Tom. Uh, come on, Tom. Uh, when we have these events that happen, there, there's, there's usually two senses of feeling. When we return back to our old stomping grounds, when we return back to our high school, either we're really, really excited because I get to go show off my spouse. I get to show off my new SUV. I got to tell everybody how much money I make, and it's going to be amazing, and so I'm really excited. Or the opposite, where I'm like, I don't want to tell these people what I'm doing. Like, I thought in life I would be so much more by now. I'm not married. I don't have a great car. Actually, I borrowed my parents' car, and I just don't want to go. And so some of us, that fear and anxiety, that'll even keep us from returning back to a place. And so I want us to talk about returning a little bit today. When I was uh, in college, uh, right out of high school, I did pretty well in high school sports uh, had a chance to go play some sports in college, but I decided not to. I erred on the side of being a little conservative. I just wanted to focus on engineering. thought that would pay off dividends as I got older, and so I, I didn't. But my first year at The Ohio State University, I watched the football team play from the student section, and it killed me every Saturday watching from the crowd, and it was killing me that I wasn't there in the midst of the team playing the sport that I loved. And so in the midst of that, I said, you know what, I'm going to try out. So January came around. I showed up with 100 other guys to try out in front of the coaches, and we all tried out, and they gathered everybody together and said, hey, men, uh, on Wednesday, we want you to return back to the complex, and on the door is going to be this white piece of paper, and it's going to tell you if you made the team. So you can imagine some anxiety that I had, some anxious thoughts as I went back that first time, and I went up, and it said the following uh, individuals have made the football team, and it was a blank piece of paper. Not one of those 100 guys or so made the team, and I was brokenhearted, but thankfully I had met and was dating the woman who would become my wife, and she is an amazing motivator. She's an amazing encourager. She's the love of my life, and she said, listen, if you want to make the team, you've got to work out, and you've got to prepare, and you've got to do this. If you want it, you can make it happen, and so for the next year, I, I sacrificed a lot of good things so that I could achieve something great, 
And so I went out and I worked out. I got faster, stronger, could jump higher. I put together this highlight film that was sick. It was sweet from my high school. Uh, you should see it. Um, it's amazing. Uh, uh, Pride was last week. I, I, I missed that week. Um, but so, so I went and I tried out and I did better than I ever have. I ran the fastest 40 that I could run, higher, did faster, ran the shuttle, looked good, was played good. I felt good about myself. And the coach said at the end, hey, come back on Wednesday, return here and you'll find out because on the paper or on the paper will say, did you make the team or not? And so uh, you can imagine some of my anxieties and thoughts as I was preparing for that day because this is really it. I was a sophomore. This is my last chance. So I remember like it was yesterday, I was coming to the, to turn in the sidewalk, and as I was turning, I could see the double doors in front of the athletic center, and I could see that white piece of paper. And as I was walking forward, the thoughts that were in my mind is, is did I perform good enough to make the team? Did I do enough good in front of the coaches that they would actually want me to be part of the team? Does the coach, does he desire for me to be on his Team And I was doing everything I could just to keep my stomach from coming up. I was so anxious about returning. And so these are the thoughts that I had as I walked up and I got to the door. And there was this white piece of paper again. So the following players that made the football team. And there's a list of four names. And by the grace of God, mine was one of those four. But you see, when we're talking about returning, I think a lot of us have those same feelings when we talk about returning to God. When, when you think about what does it mean for me to return to God, to come into his presence, many of us have these thoughts, am I good enough? Have I performed good enough so that he would want me on his team? And what are his thoughts of me? Does he even want me on his team? And, and many of us in this room, we do not know God intimately enough, close enough to have a real specific response to what do I get when I return to God. And so today we're just going to rally around one teaching that Jesus did that I think when you leave this room that you'll know the truth of what happens when I return to God. So look in Luke chapter 15. We're going to start out in verse 1 and 2. Luke 15 verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. And him is Jesus. So the tax collectors and sinners, they were drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, we could do an hour-long sermon just on these two verses. There's so much to learn, but we're not going to do that. We've got two things that we're going to look at. What can I learn about God in these two verses? And, 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 and what context do I get from what Jesus is about to teach in these parables? And so the first thing that we see, it says that Jesus was with sinners. They were drawn to Jesus. Listen, this is the heart of Jesus, which is the heart of God because he's the exact imprint of God. So when we look at Jesus, we see the Father, and the heart of the Father is to draw people to himself, to draw the prostitute, to draw the sinner, to draw the tax collector to himself. This is the heart of God. He desires this. And what's interesting is Jesus and the sinners there wasn't a lot in common, yet they still wanted to be around him. They were still drawn to him. Jesus was not soft on truth, but he was not soft on grace either. He was truth and grace. And so we see in the life of Jesus that this is the life that we are called to live because the heart of God it is there to draw the broken, to invite the sick, 
to eat with the sinner and the prostitute. Anyone who humbly approaches him is welcome. And so we see this in Jesus. Yet we see the response of the Pharisees. These Pharisees, these religious leaders, they're looking at Jesus, the one that says he is the son of God, he is a great rabbi, he is a teacher, and they see him and they say, man, not only does he hang out with sinners, which is bad enough, but he actually eats with them. What is wrong with this man? Does he not know who he is eating with? And what they're doing, they are looking at the other people that are at the table with Jesus, all these sinners, and they're stacking themselves up to them, saying, I'm better than that guy, I'm better than that guy. Why would Jesus let these people into his presence, and let alone, why would he let them eat with him? And so we learn something here, that the Pharisees, the Pharisees are always a detour away from God, and Jesus was always an on-ramp to God. The Pharisees were a detour away from God. They were always trying to throw things in front of, of, of sinners that would keep them from coming to know the Father. Hey, you did this, you didn't pray this, you didn't tithe on your mint leaves or whatever. They would throw these things to try to hinder somebody to come to Jesus, But Jesus, every single time in the scriptures, he says, come, come. Because the filter Jesus had with people was anybody is welcome to come to me. Let me, church, let me just remind you, you're not the filter. Church, we're not the filter to say who can come into church and who can't. We're not the filter that says who can come to the Father and who can't. Our job as a church is to throw the net as far out as we can and to let God who decides to come in. We are not the filter. And so we've got to be reminded here from the very beginning that the heart of Jesus is to call the sinner home. He wants us to come to him. That's his heart. The second thing we learn is context. Now this is very important for what we're gonna study. So in this context, remember that Jesus is a Jewish man. That may be a surprise to you, but Jesus was a Jew, uh, is still Jewish uh, when he's sitting in heaven right now. He was a Jew, and he was speaking to Jewish men and maybe some women on the side. Now, in the context here, we know there was two groups of people. And so for the teaching today, all the people that are halfway forward in these front section, you guys are the sinners, okay? You good with that? Like some of you play your part really, really well, okay? So you guys are the sinners. You don't have to pretend too much. And the back half of you guys... You guys are the Pharisees, and some of you really don't have to pretend that much, right? You're the Pharisees. And so we see this is the context of the story that Jesus is going to tell, and he's going to speak to both groups. And so it's important for us to really sit in and think about if we were there, what would these men who were hearing Jesus speak, what were they thinking, and what did it mean to them what Jesus was speaking? So we're going to look at the prodigal son, the parable, which is a terrible title, because it puts all the uh, accolades and all the emphasis on the son, but the emphasis is not on the younger son who ran away. It's not on the older son. The emphasis is on the father, the compassionate, grace-filled, loving father. That is who the story center, centers around, and, uh, and this is where I want us to go today. So let me paraphrase uh, a little bit uh, to make sure we get caught up here. And so Jesus is telling this story to a bunch of Jews, the sinners and the Pharisees in the back. And he starts out by saying, hey, there were two sons, a younger son and an older son. The younger son one day goes to his father and says, father, hey, uh, I want all of my inheritance now. Can you give it to me? Now, in, in paraphrasing what he said, he was saying, father, I really wish you were dead but you're not really doing what I want you to do. So can you just give me uh, my piece of the inheritance that like when you die, like I want that today. Can you imagine the audacity? 
Can you imagine? Now, now think of this. This is an honor and shame society. The Middle East, it's still that way today. Honor and shame. And in the midst of that, you've got these sinners and Pharisees. They're hearing this. Now, when they heard this, they were probably like, get that kid out of here. What is that kid thinking? Asking his father for that. Take him behind the woodshed and show him what's up. Yet, to their surprise, Jesus goes on with a story and he says the father actually goes ahead and he gives him his piece of the inheritance. He just gives it to this younger son. It says a few days later, the son takes all of his money. He probably had to sell off property to somebody else. He took the money and went to a far off land. He spent it all on reckless living. Now, we don't know the details of of what it was, so we're not going to read into it, but it was reckless. It was just loose. He scattered the money. And before long, he was without money. And the story goes that there was a famine that hit the exact same time. Now, look at verse 15. He says, so he, the boy, he went up and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods of the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Now this is the first part where we see context matters tremendously. But was anybody else in FFA or 4-H? Anybody? Uh, Raise your hand proudly. It's something to be proud of, FFA. Yes, I was an FFA state degree holder, uh, state champion, royal, rural, not royal, rural soil judging. So if you have a question about your soil, you know who to ask. Uh, That was me. And one of the projects that I had in FFA was that I raised pigs. So I'd take these baby little piglets, I would get them really, really fat, and I would take them to the fair, and I would show them with a cane, walk around my pigs. Imagine me doing that, walking around a pig. And and then I would take them, and I would sell them, and they would end up on your plate. That's what happens when you have pigs. And, uh, And so I have an affinity for the swine family. I like pigs. I've been around them a lot of my life, and I enjoy them. I think they're funny. They're actually very smart. They actually don't like mud. They actually would prefer good water, but you wouldn't know that because we just give them mud. Uh, They are great animals. But remember, context means a lot in this passage. Because in this context, Jesus is speaking to Jewish sinners and Pharisees and himself are Jews. Now, to a Jew, a pig was an unclean animal because of the Levitical law that they were still under. And so when, when this young son, when he got so low in life that he had to lower himself to go feed the pigs, it wasn't just that he was feeding a barnyard, he was feeding the unclean, like the lowest possible thing. This son had hit rock bottom. I was trying to think of an analogy and the best I could come with is, let's say you were really, really successful in business and things fell apart and you had to go hire yourself out to the University of Texas football family and you had to pick up the laundry. Like it doesn't get any worse than that. Like it just doesn't. Just look at the score last night. I mean, so close, but yet so far away. Like it's just. And so we see that uh, this son is in a mess. He left his father, declared his independence and goes out, and he is now in shame. He is now at the lowest possible thing that a Jewish boy could have. Now, let's pick up in verse 17. He says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So I think in these few verses, we can learn something here. Is that the son, he, he was motivated not by feeling bad for what he did, not because he wanted to go make amends to his father. The son was driven back to his father because he was hungry. 
When it boils down to it, he said, listen, I am hungry here. My father has food, so I'm gonna go so I can get filled up. Now, this is interesting because we can learn something here about God. Listen, he cares less about your motivations than he does you actually coming back home. He doesn't care what circumstance it takes for you to come back because that's his number one desire for you. So if it takes you being broke financially, listen, that's a great opportunity for you to say, you know what, God, I'm gonna come back to you. If your relationships are broken, God says, listen, I, I can use that. If you're doing super well in the marketplace, making lots of money, yet you still wake up every day and say, there's gotta be more to life than this, God still wants to use that motivation to turn your attention back to him. He cares less about your motivation and more about you turning and coming back to him. And we see this in his son. It was his stomach, not that he felt bad, but it was his stomach that sent him back to the father. Now let's pick up in verse 20. This is where it starts getting interesting. It says, he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And all the women said amen to that, right? And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate and what I love about this, if, you're, if we're putting ourselves in the midst of the story, so Jesus is speaking to the sinners, he's speaking to the Pharisees, you've got to think of what was the uh, picture, what was the movie that was going on in their head because Jesus was such a good teacher that they were really thinking and processing in terms of their context. And so it, what I'm thinking of when I read this story is that every morning the father probably went out onto his porch, if he had a porch, and he looked out on the horizon at sunrise and said, is today the day that my son's gonna come home? Is today the day that my son's gonna come home? And then I, th I think a little farther at nighttime, like what did the father do? He probably went and laid down on his bed or his rug, whatever he had, and, uh, and he probably said, hey honey, I'll be right back. I've gotta go check on something. And he probably went back out in the moonlight and said, is my son coming home? Because from the context of here, it says that the father saw the son from afar way off, a long way off. And what we can gather from that is the father was expectantly looking for the son to return back to him. And when he finally saw him, it says that he had great compassion and he ran to him. Now, when I was a, a young boy, uh, I had a dog, love dogs. His name was Pierre the Bear, Pierre the Bear. And we're not French, we're not from Louisiana, we don't have any French, but we like the word, the name Pierre, my mom named him, I think. So Pierre the Bear and I, we were best friends, we went on adventures all the time, we would go in the woods because we kind of lived out, and so we would have adventures. We got in trouble, we did fun things, my, my dog was my right hand, man, Pierre the Bear and me, that's how we rolled when I was a little kid. And from every once in a while, my dog would disappear. But we lived out in the country a little bit, and so when he disappeared, he would usually show back up after he did whatever dogs do when they disappear and come back. Uh, he would show back up. But, but one time, uh, Pierre decided to leave, and one day turned into two days, which turned into three days, and I began to get a little anxious about Pierre the bear. And every day, I would go out on my back porch, and I would look for my dog, Pierre, and I would call to him. I would scream for him. Nothing. 
a few more days passed and my parents start getting a little nervous. And so they begin to kind of uh, buffer my emotions. And they say, hey, maybe Pierre the bear found himself a woman dog and he ran off and got married. I didn't want to hear that he met a French poodle and ran off. Like I didn't want to hear that. And so I held out hope that Pierre would come back. And then a few more days passed and they start talking about doggy heaven. And I said, no, I still have hope. And so every morning before I went to school and every day when I came back, we, we lived up on this uh, hill in the rolling foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. And so we lived up on the hill and I could see the city uh, that we lived in or a little bit from. And I saw my driveway and, and the nickel plate road that we lived on. And so every day I would go out and I would look out and I would say, is my dog? And I would yell for my dog and I would hold up a hot dog and say, hey, can Mary Pierre? You know, you've done that. And, and then one day I went out and I saw this little brown little thing running at, now it was far distant, so I didn't know if it was a bear or my dog, but, but in my heart, I knew it was Pierre the bear. And so I jumped off my porch and I ran the fastest 40 of my life. And I went down and ran down my hill and I saw my dog, it was Pierre, and I wrapped my arms around him and loved him and kissed him, that nasty like open mouth kiss, you know, that some people do with dogs, like it's so disgusting, but I loved my dog, like, I didn't care. And he smelled so bad. He was wet. He smelled like a wet dog that had been out for 10 days. His hair was matted. He had briars in it. He was nasty, but none of that mattered because my dog had come home and I was going to love that thing. I love that dog. And when he came back, I was going to do anything to get to him. Now, I think some of you in the room, you would probably feel the same way. Like if you had your dog leave and like 10 days later, he showed up, like you're beelining it, running. I don't care if you ever ran for 10 years, you're going to run to your dog. And, and you cat people, like if your cat came back, you'd run to your cat. And I don't know what you would probably pick it up and look at. Like, I don't know what you would do. Like, I don't know, I don't know what you do. Like you hug cats. Like, I don't think so. But if you had a dog, you would hug your dog, right? But then we take it and ramp it up a little further and say, what if your child was missing? What if your son or daughter had gone away? Every day you're expecting, is today the day that my son or daughter is gonna come home? And if you saw your son or daughter, you better bet you, I'm gonna be every single person to my son or daughter because they had been gone and I wanted to see them. But here's where, once again, we have context in the story. Because you and I, we would run to a dog, we would run to a cat maybe, and we would definitely run to our kids. But in this time, this is a different type of culture. In this culture, it was extremely shameful for a man, let alone the patriarch, the father of a family, to be seen running. Now, it was all right for the mom to do that, and we see that several times in the scriptures that the moms would run to the child. That was totally acceptable, but not for a dad honor and shame society. Now, here's the reason why uh, a father could not or a man could not run is because, remember, they're not wearing jeans or Under Armour shorts. They're wearing these, these tunics, right? These heavy, kind of round. And, and so if you've ever seen a woman run in a dress, I mean, it's really short strides. I mean, she's like, and you can't really go that fast, right? Like, it's super short strides, and when you have a short stride, you can't run fast. And so, like, you can't run with your dress down. And so imagine this guy, he has a tunic. The only way for him to run fast is for him to lift up the tunic. And when he did that, he would show off his legs. Now, you guys wearing shorts and sandals, you're, you're done for today. I'm sorry. There's, there's grace for you. No condemnation in Christ today. But this is before Christ. And they were still under the law. So when he raised up his pants to run, his pants, his tunic to run, he would be showing his skin. And in showing his skin, he would be bringing great shame upon himself and his family. 
Now, this puts a lot of weight on the story that Jesus is telling. He's saying, listen, the father, he saw the son from a long distance, and he had compassion. So he ran to him, and in running to him, he would have brought shame to himself. He would have lowered his status in society by running. Now, we've got to ask the question, though, why would he run to his son? Why wouldn't he just sit there in his recliner and say, hey, that boy walked away. He spent all my money. Send him here, but make him walk all the way. He didn't do that. He took on great shame and he ran to his son. And I think it's really important for us to understand why again. Because as these sinners, these Jews, and the Pharisees were sitting there, they would have understood exactly what Jesus was speaking about when he told them why the father ran to the son. Because in this time of honor and shame, if a son or a daughter were to bring shame to a family, maybe they married the wrong person that the family didn't want them to marry, or whether they took the money and ran and dishonored their family, if they did that and they tried to come back home to the community, the community would have this ceremony of shame called a kazaza. Everybody say that, kazaza. Yeah, kazaza, amazing name, amazing word. And it was a ceremony that really was about shame. Now, this guy named Kenneth Bailey, if you want to look him up, he's a great theologian, uh, a great author, a New Testament scholar. He speaks and has written books about this. But the kazaza was a ceremony they they would perform. So if a son or daughter had come back home after bringing great shame to the family, the community would see them and they would go and grab a pot. They would take that pot and they would meet the son or daughter at the edge of the community. They would break that pot in front of them And they would say, listen, you are cut off. You are not welcome here. You brought shame to your father. Now we're bringing shame to you. You are not welcome here. Go your way. Because in that moment, the community would be trying to restore the honor of the father. And by doing that, they would honor him and they would dishonor the one that had dishonored his father. And so these people were thinking about this when it happened. And so it makes even greater sense of why the father ran to his son, because he knew what was gonna happen if he didn't get there first. If he didn't beat the community to his son, the community would have brought great shame. They would have said, you're dishonored, you're cut off from this community. So he knew that, and so he hiked up his tunic, he shamed himself so that he could get to his son first. And I think the process, the mind, the thought of, at least this is what I think about, I think he was thinking, I have to get to my son with grace before they get to him with the law. I've got to get, the one that can decide, I've got to get there to my son with grace before everybody else gets to him with the law and sends him away. That's what the father, I think, was thinking. And that's why he said, it's worth my shame to get there, to show my legs, to run, to be embarrassed so that I could accept my son. And so when he gets there, he doesn't tell him all the wrong things he did, as I probably would if I was him. Instead, he embraces him and he kisses his son. Despite how the son would have smelled like a pig, despite how the son looked with his body odor and his rags and probably no shoes, the fact that he had nothing at all to offer his father, he still loved on him, embraced him, kissed him, accepted him. And by acting this way, by showing the compassion, what he told everyone is there is not gonna be a dishonoring service today. 
there's not going to be any shame ceremony. There is no kazaza on my watch because this, my son, he was lost and he is found. He was dead and he is alive and I love him. He is my son. And he made it really clear to the son and to everyone else around him that he was receiving him back. Rags, no shoes, smelling like a pig. And I think it's important for us to, to think about this for a moment, that he didn't require the son to go clean up before he loved on him. Because if you're like me and you're in the midst of sin or you're doing some things that you know you're not supposed to be doing, what's Satan tell you? Hey, you need to go and have two months where you're, you don't sin. Like they cut that out for two months, then you can come out to the light and you can tell God about that. But if you're like me and you've tried that, you realize that two months is just a pipe dream. You're not going to get there. And so I just want to speak truth into you because this is how Satan lies to us today is that you need to clean up your act before you come back to God. You need to get everything in your life situated. You need to go to church more. You need to get a community group. You need to serve. You need to do all these things. And then maybe I'll accept you. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. Because what we see here is the son, when he returned, he had nothing to offer. And so what we see is the father meets him where he was at, but he wasn't willing to leave him there. See, that's how God does with us. He meets us where we're at, yet the grace that he gives us, it doesn't just leave us in the pigsty, it then takes us out. And so what we see in this story, the father doesn't just tell him and kiss him and embrace him. He then gives him three gifts. He gives him a robe signifying that you are right now and standing in my presence, that this is my son. Everybody look, he's got a robe on, he's now my son. I've taken the rags away, you're now my son. And then he gave him a ring and the ring signified power. So he delegated his own authority to the son by giving him a ring. And then the last gift that he gave him was a pair of shoes because the slaves at the time were the only ones that didn't have shoes. He said, my, my son's not gonna walk in dishonor and shame. I, I'm gonna give my son shoes because I want him to be honored. I want him to be known as my son. And so what we see God represent in this story is that he will meet you wherever you're at today. If we would humbly turn to him and come back to the Father. And this is a beautiful picture of Jesus. Now remember, Jesus hadn't gone to the cross. He hadn't died yet. And so we have a little bit more of the story than these people that were there listening to Jesus teach. But the story of Jesus in the gospel is this, that we were the ones that brought shame. We were the ones that have dishonored God by going against him, by disobeying. We were the ones that were the ones to be destined for the pain and the wrath of God because of our sin, separation from God. That's what we were do. But because Jesus came, he ran to us with compassion. He died a shameful death on the cross so that he could invite us into. He would say, no, listen, Derek, he's my son. There's not gonna be any shaming service today. I've died on the cross for him. He is my son. Make it known. My son has come home. Derek is mine. That's what Jesus has done for every single one of us. Took our shame so that we wouldn't have shame, so we could be invited into the kingdom of God to be his son and daughter. When we turn, he embraces. We turn, he embraces every single time. So then he takes his, uh, his focus off of the sinners and the tax collectors, and you guys can take a deep breath now. And he then goes back to the Pharisees that were probably on the outskirts watching this and, and picking apart his sermon, as some people like to do. And... Um, and so he begins to raise his attention to the Pharisees now. So let's read verses 25 through 31. Now his older son was in the field, 
And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked, what are these things meant? And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and treated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when his son, the son of yours, came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So you can imagine the Pharisees, as he began to tell this part of the story, they probably started squirming in their seats a little bit. Because what we see in this son is he was full of anger and bitterness and disgust about the son of his father. He wouldn't even say his own brother. Did you catch that? Like he wouldn't even say my brother. He said the son of yours because he was given such grace. And listen, I've been there. That guy is a jerk. He does all these things. God, why do you let him have off? Like why do you give him favor? Why do you give him grace? I've been there. I've done it. And this is the heart that the son has, that he thinks that he is deserving of God's blessing because of what he's done. He speaks like a true Pharisee. He says, this many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed you. Give me a break. He felt as if he had done nothing wrong and therefore he should receive the blessing of his father. You see, the older son, what he was doing is he was diminishing the love, the grace, mercy and the generosity of his father by saying I deserve you see when he say I deserve this it's no longer grace he was saying I deserve it's the same Pharisee downfall that we see that they believed that they were good enough by what they had done and not done and therefore they should receive God's mercy and his favor but here's the truth you can't receive what you think you already have You can't receive what you think you already have. So the Pharisees thought they had it all together. They didn't need anything else. But because of that, they never really experienced the love and the grace of God. What's interesting in this section is that the son, this older son, he was so mad and bitter at what the younger son had done. And the younger son, he had brought shame to his family brought great shame and he was so focused on that boy and what he did and didn't do that he missed out that he was doing the exact same things to his father because when they were having this conversation they were probably within earshot of the celebration and people were watching like people like to do they just want to have some dirt everybody was watching this and and his response to his father his 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 saying no i'm not going to come into your party what he was doing is he was bringing great shame upon his father In essence, he was doing the exact same thing that he was so mad about his brother doing. You see, when we operate with a Pharisee mentality, we can easily see the sin in other people, but we often miss our own sin. What's interesting, though, in the midst of this son showing him extreme shame, the father still extends grace and mercy, and he says, listen, please come inside. Join us in this celebration. See, this is the beauty of Jesus. 
He longs for both the prostitute and the Pharisee to eat at the table. He longs for both to know and receive his love and forgiveness. It's the same offer that he extends each one of us today. He wants you to know that when you return to God with humility, what you get is love, grace, mercy, and maybe most importantly today, you receive your true identity as a child of God. And so as Jesus was doing this teaching, uh, the, the crowd was definitely associating themselves with some of the different figures in, in the story. The sinners for sure were looking at the prodigal and said, man, I relate to that guy. I've been running away from God. I've done so many things that have contrary to what I know I'm supposed to do. I've been seeking my own fulfillment, seeking my own joy. I've been running away from God. And this is what the prodigals would have been, or what they would associate themselves with the prodigal. And so today, maybe that's you. Maybe you've ran away from God and you're running your own path and you're really seeking independence and you thought it would be all better, but, but you still feel empty inside. Maybe you relate to the prodigal this morning. Or, or maybe some of you relate way more with the older son. Maybe you find it difficult that God would choose who he wants to show favor to and who he wants to show grace to. You, you find it really easy to pick apart other people, whether that's inside the faith or outside of the faith. You go at, at length to, to separate a whole group of people that think different than you. You write them off whether it's on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, if that's you, you would associate with the older son, the Pharisee. You're a detour away from God rather than an on-ramp to God. But the beauty of the story is that we're actually called to be like the father, living in a way that says, hey, come, I wanna introduce you to the king, King Jesus. Hey, you have this problem, you don't think exactly right, you're not Christian enough yet, hey, come on. It's not my job to filter you out. Uh, Come in here. I'm gonna love on you. I'm gonna show you grace. I'm gonna show you compassion and I'll trust God with the rest. And today I I wanna invite us to think very seriously about our relationship with God and who we think he is. And I want you to think about who am I in that story? Today, I wanna offer you an opportunity to come and say, you know what, I have been running a long time away from God. I've never said yes to him. I I want to say yes to God. Or maybe you've never said yes to God and today you wanna say yes. Or today you realize that, man, you're way more a religious Pharisee than you thought. The beauty is Jesus says, come, come, come as you are. I'll meet you and we'll go from there. Lord, I thank you uh, that you don't leave it Uh, any gray on what happens when we come to you. No matter what walk of life we're living, no matter the choices that we've made in the past, that you say when we turn to you, we are no longer defined by our past failures, our past successes. We are now defined as yours. So Holy Spirit, I pray you would draw us today. Those that are embarrassed to step forward, Lord, I pray you would just give them great courage. Those that are feeling shame and fear and guilt, Lord, speak truth into them that if they are a follower of yours, they are a son or a daughter, and that you want them to walk into that identity and live that out, not live in a place of fear, a place of hiding, a place of darkness, but they're children of light. So Lord, draw us to you today. Draw me to you today. Give me a revelation of your grace, even as we sing this last worship song. In your name, amen.